Greetings and welcome to the Venture Fizz podcast. I'm Keith Klein, the founder of Venture Fizz and the host of this show. If you're not familiar with Venture Fizz, well, we are the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. So if you're looking to find a new job or just stay connected to the tech ecosystem in either Boston or New York City, then we are your localized resource. For the 34th episode of our podcast, I interviewed Kent Bennett, partner at Bessemer Venture Partners. Kent's career path in the venture capital wasn't typical. He was actually a Hollywood screenwriter before attending Harvard Business School and pursuing a career in venture. He now has 10 years of experience as a venture capitalist and has made investments in lots of high-profile companies like Blue Apron, Toast, which just announced $115 million in new funding at a $1.4 billion valuation, MealPal, Renoviso, and others. In this episode, we cover lots of topics like his experience as a screenwriter in Hollywood, how he got into venture capital, his investment criteria and how to get on his radar, what to expect during your first meeting with him, plus a lot more. Okay, quick side note. Do you subscribe to our weekly email? It's a weekly digest of all the things you need to know about the tech and startup scene in either Boston or New York City. It's the one email week that keeps you dialed in. Go to venturefizz.com backslash email to sign up. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Ken. Ken, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. Thanks. All right. So right on the Bessemer Venture Partners website in your bio, there's something that I had to ask you about. Uh, it says 16 years since touring as a cruise ship performer. Ah, yes. Please tell me what that means. <laughs> yeah. My, my, my true calling uh, just didn't quite work out. So in college, um, friends of mine and I basically had no money and hacked our way into traveling the world. So we would call up cruise ships and offer our services as uh, you know, barbershop quartet-like singing old standards, um, which do really well on cruise ships because the average age um, might be you know, 70 to 75. Um, and, uh, and as such, would travel around the world on our spring breaks, um, kind of singing for our supper. What a great hack. So you saw the world on a cruise ship's dime. Yes, it was, uh, it was, it was eye-opening um, and uh, not quite as exotic. Again, <laughs> cruise ships are a little more shuffle, shuffleboard uh, focused right. than, uh, than sort of true adventure travel, but it, was, uh, it worked for the time. It was nice. Very, very cool. So where did you grow up? I uh, grew up in Richmond, Virginia. Um, and uh, same, you know, same small town in school for my entire life until I went to college an hour away at the University of Virginia. And so it wasn't until um, 2000 that I came, that I really left the state and came up to Boston. Got it. So after, so you graduated with a degree in systems engineering. So were you thinking of pursuing that career path at first? Um, I, you know, the truth is I wasn't really thinking. Um, I think there's a theme there probably in my career is um, I was sort of drifting towards the light of what were interesting problems, what were interesting things to sort of... Um, think about. And so I liked engineering because I loved tech and found, um, you know, many of the topics uh, pretty interesting. And I never thought about my career at all. I mean, this is sort of, I graduated in 2000. So the internet was kind of broken. I mean, it was working and we were slightly on it, but um, you couldn't go research professions. And I had no idea what I was going to do. Um, and a friend of mine had worked at Bain & Company, which I'd never heard of. And she told me it was fun. And I showed up in an interview like, Hey, tell me what Bain is. I mean, and sort of stumbled into a career there. And that was as much of a plan as I had graduating. And then your career took an interesting pivot. So this isn't something that I commonly see in the tech industry of someone that has spent part of their career as a Hollywood screenwriter. 
Right. So what is Bain management consulting right. strategy? Exactly. No, I'm going to go to Hollywood and be a screenwriter. So what, <laughs> how did you come up with that idea? What led you down the path of doing that? Well, so I grew up watching um, a lot of movies and TV. And so, of course, that qualified me to be a, a screenwriter. Um, <laughs> and so uh, after a couple of years at Bain, <laughs> how clueless I was, I, I packed up a car and drove out to Los Angeles to write screenplays. And it turns out I was not the only person to have that idea that year um, in L.A. that um, there were a couple of us. But, uh, yeah, just a total total sort of um, wandering idiot um, rolling into Los Angeles. I think the story I tell um, is uh, driving to Los Angeles and I, my writing partner and I got about a hundred miles outside of the city. And all of a sudden the sky looks like there's been sort of a nuclear disaster of some sort. And we're like, Oh my God, what, what's happening here? And we turned on the radio, uh, which is what you did at that time. Uh, to find out what was happening. And it turned out nothing was happening. L.A. just has smog. We just weren't aware of that because we've never been to California or L.A. or anywhere. Um, and yeah, we just we got to town, rented the cheapest apartment we could. I, we, I'd saved up money for years um, uh, so that we could on like a peanut butter and jelly diet, not have to get jobs immediately and just spent all day, every day writing scripts and um, and then had to figure out what to do with them uh, for the next step. And so then what happened? So did you actually get, you know, make some progress within the, yeah, the Hollywood I mean, we were scene? A cliche. So we would go to bars. Uh, we couldn't afford um, to drink at bars. So, so you know, we'd like uh, maybe have a drink at home, go to a bar and try to strike up conversations with people who looked like they were, you know, in the industry. I mean, we knew nothing, um, but slowly uh, kind of networked our way into groups of people who, um, for whatever reason, didn't kick us out um, of the rooms they were in. And, you know, I think the secret there was we'd written a pretty compelling um, first script, at least in theory. We wrote a story about a guy whose job it was to clean up all of your dirty secrets after you died. And so that one liner um, mm -hmm. would open up some conversations and eventually somebody optioned that script. And that got us into more rooms with more, you know, people taking us more seriously than they should have. Um, and I think I can't remember the timeline. It feels like um, it took months, but it was probably a year or so in there. Uh, we ended up stumbling our way into selling um, a pilot to uh, Fox Television. And that was totally shocking to us. And um, again, being very naive, we thought, Oh gosh, we've made it. I mean, I yeah, remember calling up my, my girlfriend at the time, now wife, and saying, like, uh, oh, good news. We're set for life. Um, we sold a sold We're a retiring. Pilot. We sold a pilot, you know, which seemed like the thing. And um what we learned over time was, you know, they buy lots of pilots and they don't make all of them. Um, we still felt really good. But again, we didn't have to um get a real job, which was a total luxury, being able to be creative for that many years and continue to write. Um, different stories. So that was really, really fun. But um, yeah, ultimately, I decided Hollywood was not my uh, best and highest use. And then so what brought you back east to, to, to Boston? So, so my then girlfriend moved out to LA. Um, she, I think, turned to me one day, it was like three o'clock in the afternoon, and I was in my pajamas writing, you know, stupid jokes. Um, and she was like, is this uh is this is going to be your life now? I was like, oh, maybe not. 
and she was applying to business school. And I think the way I remember it is she um, knew me better than I know myself. And I think talked me into applying to business school, probably knowing that I would, I would get there and, you know, and find something else. But I think her pitch to me was, Hey, if you want to be in Hollywood, you know, maybe you should know a bit more about business to be able to manage your career. Um, and so we ended up going back to business school. And, and the second I got to business school, um, I bumped into people who had been working in the tech industry. I'd been a, a geek forever and a lifelong sort of lover of tech and tech products, um, but not really focused on sort of the business of startups and the business of tech. And um, bumping into people in school, I immediately um, didn't miss Hollywood and began to think about um, the tech world. Got it. And this was Harvard Business School, right? This is Harvard. Yeah. This brought us back to Boston. Got it. Okay. So then after HBS, how did you get into venture capital? So um, my story uh, getting into venture is the annoying. There's two stories of how people get into venture. One is some people are actually talented and you know deserve a job in venture and, and work the right way to get their job. And other people just kind of walk down the street and like a piano of venture capital falls out of a building and hits him on the head. And that was mine. A friend of mine had worked at Bessemer before business school, ended up at business school with me at the same time. Bessemer, for whatever reason, happened to be hiring um, for a profile of a consumer media, um, you know, junior associate investor. And so I, that's like the only job I was even slightly qualified for having been a screenwriter before school. And so that's the piano that sort of fell out of the window and hit me on the head. And I, and I ended up with a job in venture, not really even knowing totally what venture capital was and certainly not having the foresight to realize that it was 2008, the world was falling apart around me, that that was probably going to impact uh, whether or not Bessemer was going to be an aggressive consumer media investor. Um, but, uh, but I signed up and again, it was sort of attraction to, you know, wow, this is a place where you can go, um, you know, spend a lot of time with a lot of people working on interesting things. So it's, you know, whether or not it's a good career move, it was going to be interesting. And do you think the time frame actually worked out in your favor? Obviously 2008, 2009 was, you know, times that I'd rather forget, uh, you know, RMP good times and all that. But, um, you know, you didn't come into venture at the height where right. it was like, everything was you know unicorns and rainbows. It was actually hard to get funded. At, yeah, I think the timing, I would love to, um, well, no one would like to go through that again. I think at the time, it seemed you learned a lot of lessons about how things could go wrong. And those are painful, but valuable. Um, you know, you'd love to not have that be your first year in venture, because I believed that nothing would ever work again. Um, and I think in 2009, the venture industry was frozen, it would have been an incredible time to be more confident and realize that, you know, things were, were not going to all go to zero. Um, but, um, but yeah, I certainly learned a lot of lessons of, um, you know, excess um, and business models that never really worked in the first place. Um, and, you know, what it's like when, when companies get massively overextended. It took us a long time to get more aggressive after that though. I mean, I think it was a couple of years before people were taking, you know, real before more investors were taking real meaningful risk again, but yeah, definitely a valuable time to start. And, you know, fast forward, it's been 10 years in venture now, right? Yeah. Like, what do you think was like the foundation of building your uh, career 
to, you know, now you're, you know, a partner and you're making investments in you know, high profile companies like, you know, Blue Apron went public. That was one of your deals. Uh, Toast just announced their new round of funding at a billion plus valuation. So what was the foundation of your career, you know, your early learnings and venture mm-hmm. that led you to your success now? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, it's, uh, you know, it's a tough one. I think the best thing, um, or one, one really good thing about Bessemer is that they let, um, junior people really learn and truly apprentice, uh, with senior investors and then eventually start to go out and make their own mistakes. I mean, I think for me, um, uh, it's, it's just really hard, um, to, uh, be a great investor, um, until you've made at least a couple, um, mistakes. And, you know, I think just sort of like ingraining the, um, humility is really important because the worst thing you can do as an investor is start to think that you're at all smart and that you're at all likely to see the next thing coming, because that's when you walk into a room with, you know, the Twitter team early days with your arms crossed thinking, you know, everything and you totally miss it. Mm -hmm. And so for me, just many, many years seeing a lot of cycles, making, you know, making bad, foolish decisions on not, not investing in things. Um, and, being given the time to sort of do that was really important. I think the other thing um, that really works for us at Bessemer is that every investor can tear off a piece of the world um, and build their own, what we call internally roadmap. And so build a deep thesis. And so it gives a chance to, you know, a younger person to go off and and explore an area that um, maybe nobody else is paying attention to and actually become, you know, internally um, somewhat expert, not a true expert enough to found a company, but enough to, um, you know, possibly find your way to something interesting. And so that for me initially was spending a lot of time in the, in the sort of big data, data infrastructure world. Um, and I, I don't spend a, a lot of my time there anymore, but just having the ability to spend a ton of time in that world and be thematic and thesis driven in the way that I approached, um, companies there, I think was a great way to sort of build confidence and build, um, you know, a bit more focus, um, early. And, and, you know, being able to, you know, kind of have 10 years of experience under your belt, what do you think makes a great venture capitalist? Like what are the, the things that they provide to entrepreneurs and founders, companies that provides a lot of value other than obviously providing funding? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, there's a lot of different flavors of good, uh, venture, um, investors and, uh, valuable venture investors to the companies they work with. I think, um, you know, the dirty secret is that the great companies don't need a lot of help with their core product or what they, you know, what they do best is what they do best. Mm -hmm. And so I think a key thing for a good investor is to recognize that and not screw them up and not sort of, um, you know, uh, I mean, of course, ask good questions at the right time, but not try to micromanage sort of the core value add. And then recognize what the things that you may know a lot about because you've seen, you know, many more cycles than um, the entrepreneurs you're working with on things like, you know, financing, financing strategy, um, you know, hiring senior executives, et cetera. And so knowing when to, you know, step in and offer help and knowing when to keep your mouth shut, I think is pretty important. Um, You know, knowing when and how to ask good questions, but not in a disruptive or combative way so that you really distract a team, I think is important. 
Um, so, but again, the dirty secret is find great teams who create products and, and, you know, mostly stay out of the way, um, I think is, uh, the, the way to be really successful. And for you, you personally, as far as your own internal roadmap is, of what you're investing in, what, what is that? What is your focus? So I spend a lot of um, my time these days focused on um, the consumer and maybe more specifically the consumer household budget. So just thinking through, you know, everything that, you know, we as consumers are, are spending money on, where are the big pain points? Um, what are the types of business models that could be, you know, offer something truly different there um, and drive uh, consumer adoption? Um, and so that I would say is, you know, 50 to 75% of my time where we may, uh, you know, dive really, really deep into like a subsector of the consumer household. Um, cause there's a lot there, of course. Um, and spending, um, a decent chunk of time focused on consumer facing verticals. So I, I love toast as a restaurant point of sale software company. It's a B2B sale. So you're selling a piece of software to, um, to a restaurateur, but, um, you know, the, experience that the consumer has in that restaurant is is a pretty significant part of what makes that product great um and so that sort of you know aligns with that theme and then i spend you know a, a small sliver of my time just thinking about what's next because um for me uh the the sort of sectors of um of startups um you know can sort of wax and wane i don't think consumers are ever going to go away entirely but I think it would be silly to spend your career um, entirely in one subsector of venture. And so, you know, what's what's the next interesting sector for me usually means like what's the next thing that most people think is, you know, stupid um, because um, for, you know, the pattern I've noticed in my career is um, the interesting investments are always um dismissed by lots of people um, early days. And so, you know, what sector might attract us next might be something that, you know, people are not talking about. Like, I think absolutely there are really interesting opportunities and things like, you know, AI and, you know, et cetera. But um, sectors like that with so much heat um, to me are somewhat less interesting than, than uh, things that are a little, little less sexy. I guess kind of going uh, deep on one particular investment that you've made is, uh, is, you know, you just mentioned toast. So at what point did you meet the team from toast and what led you down the path of believing and investing to, you know, now they just, you know, raised their next round of funding, which was 115 million at a $1.4 billion valuation, but you invested much earlier. So what, mm -hmm. what was it that, you know, made you believe in what they could do? Yeah, well, I got it wrong before I got it right. So that was, that was <laughs> um, and, um, you know, I met the founders of that company um, as they were just getting started before they even knew what they were going to do. And they were introduced to me um, by someone who said they were, you know, some of the most talented people um, this person had ever worked with. Um, it was Steve Papa, who's the founder of Indeca, um, who's a, you know, a magnet for talent, but, um, he's, he sort of flagged the toast founders as, as truly special. Um, and, uh, they were interested in the restaurant industry. They didn't, they may, I don't think they initially knew exactly what they were going to do. They were going to sell restaurants, um, CRM technology. So helping restaurants, um, market to their best customers and sort of keep those customers, um, you know, keep a Rolodex and email coupons. I can't remember exactly. And they went out to try to make that work. Um, we actually had them sit 
you know, they were hanging out in our office for a while and they tried to make that work. And that was really hard to work because um, they couldn't integrate into the legacy point of sale systems, these kind of 40, 50 year old um, products that were um, a little clunky. And one day I remember, I remember a meeting where they came in and said, gosh, these legacy POSs are such a pain. We're just going to build our own. And I think I said something to the effect of like, well, that's like the dumbest idea I've heard all day. Um, <laughs> these point of sale systems, they're, you know, these are heart it's lung like machines. Micros, right? micros, micros like, and NCR and, yeah. you know, but I had the same conventional wisdom that frankly, a lot of people had, which is a, like the restaurant vertical is really, you know, painful and restaurants go out of business all the time. So there's all sorts of problems there. And B, these are 40 year old systems with a million features and it's going to take you a decade to build something that's good enough for anyone to trust you to adopt it. And so and, you know, around that moment, they were raising a seed fund and we didn't invest, which is, you know, one of the dumber decisions I've ever made. Um, even though we love the founders, uh, we just couldn't get um, comfortable with the space. And six months later, you know, talking to them, they had done it. I mean, just they had willed into existence a product that, you know, probably no restaurateur should have taken a leap on. But, you know, uh, they gotten a dozen or so restaurant um, owners to believe in them. And it was really them, you know, not only building a product that was viable, but being, you know, sleeping under the bars at a lot of restaurants, making the thing work. Um, and it was clear pretty early on that even though they probably had a million features to build, that just some fundamental things about being a cloud-based, tablet-based um, point-of-sale system gave them some real potential advantages. And, you know, they were just um, incredible executors and built and built and built. And pretty soon their product was better than the legacy product uh, for many restaurants and, and also emerged as um, being clearly, by the time we invested, um, just a better product than some of the other um, sort of next-gen uh, players, than all the other next-gen players that we saw. So, you know, we eventually got there and got comfortable and and uh, and they let us admit that we were idiots at first and let us um, invest in the next round, which was great. So same question, like Blue Apron, right? So uh, Toast is building a next-generation POS, you know, software that the founders, really smart, can figure out how to build hopefully a, a product that, is you know achieves massive market adoption blue apron on the other hand has logistical challenges right you got food right there's uh you know just getting you know these meal kits shipped to consumers you got to acquire consumers like the complexity of that model so you know what was it about blue apron that brought you you know kind of into that investment? yeah look I, and i think the the i would connect the two i think that um i sort of feel like it's not always that complicated that basically very rarely you see a company that has a product that is so good that customers like it. And those customers in many ways spread the word to other customers. And that was, was happening early days at Toast. Um, you know, these customers were seeing the value proposition of this cloud-based POS and they were, they were buying it. And then they were telling their friends and other people were walking into their restaurant and asking them about the product. And that continues to this day. And so, you know, the basic lesson lesson is build an incredible product and all of a sudden everything else becomes easy in a way. And early days of Blue Apron, that was um, it was really clear in the data um, at the time. Um, you know, there were, food tech was not a phrase. 
And so what, what we had to get over was the fact that, you know, we were mailing boxes of, of onions and ingredients to people. And that was not like the software that we invested in. And so that was, that was weird. There wasn't nearly the sort of same volume of direct to consumer um, companies, but the numbers were incredible. Every customer who would come in um, would be telling, you know, 10 other customers about the product in short order. And so, you know, the top level growth was there. And I was one of the early customers. I was lucky enough to um, have been an early customer of a couple of these um, meal kit companies that had come out at the same time. And I, I just vastly preferred the Blue Apron product for reasons that who knows were a little bit personal, but, um, you know, it was just a great product early days um, and, and remains so. I'm still a weekly user. Um, and so it was kind of that simple. It was like, wow, we love this product. We're watching this viral behavior where we, you know, find this to be a, a, a better and cheaper and faster way for us to solve our families. You know, what are we eating tonight problem? We are telling our friends they're using it and we're just seeing that growth. So the only thing we had to get comfortable with was that this was a business that, you know, that VCs could invest in because there weren't, you know, a ton of, you know, unlike recurring revenue software businesses, there weren't a million wonderful role models that told us that this made sense. Um, but, uh, but we got there. That's awesome. Now, uh, as far as you actually making an investment, like what, what's kind of like your, uh, criteria that, you know, gets you to the point where it's like, yes, we're going to, you know, actually write a term sheet. Yeah. Again, it's, um, we try not to overcomplicate it. So we start with, um, of course, team is, you know, paramount, but before we, um, try to evaluate the team, because I think we don't want to judge a team, um, you know, based on some set of, you know, random criteria, because there are lots of incredible teams who can, you know, look and present very differently. We look at the product and we just say, is this product, and, and if it's not launched yet, is the theory of this product, if we believe that this product can do what they say it will do, or you know, if it's launched, we look at the product in the field and we say, is this product incredible? Um, if it's a consumer product, is it delivering some utility that um, is just undeniable, where there's just no debate that this, that, you know, um, that, uh, you know, Uber got customers from A to B in a way they had never been taken from A to B. Um, and so there's just like this undeniable utility advantage. Um, does it at the same time offer people an economic value proposition so that we think that's it tends to be pretty important for consumer businesses that not only do you offer them something that they can't do anywhere else, but they feel pretty good about the, um, the sort of cost trade off of it. Um, often it offers them some convenience. Um, so it saves them time in addition to like giving them, you know, some new superpower saves them time, um, and is really easy and frictionless to adopt. And finally, like that they feel, you know, a positive affiliation with the brand when all of those or some uh, decent, uh, set of those criteria come together, you see this behavior that we saw early days of blue apron, which is customers freak out. They love the product and they tell their friends. And, um, and again, if it's pre-launch, you have to sort of ask yourself that question a lot and ask a hundred consumers, like, would you buy this? Would you love this? Um, if it did what, you know, we think it could do. So when you see that behavior, then the next question is, is this being done with a viable business model? And so of course we like to look at, um, you know, some of the key components of business model, but, um, uh, to, to sort of like sum them up, we look at, is there an efficient way to acquire customers when the product is going viral and people are telling their friends about it? That's an easy way to prove to yourself efficiency. But let's say that wears off someday. The novelty of this wears off is, do we think that, um, you know, the unit economics of this product will support, um, you know, other acquisition channels, paid acquisition and the like, um, 
do we think that the product can be delivered with, you know, sustainable positive margins? And so we can actually make some money someday. Maybe, you know, on day one, you don't um, have the greatest margins, but do you need to believe in miracles to see the product get to good margins or can it get there with, you know, reasonably, um, uh, you know, reasonable execution? Um, and then, you know, then the a big question that follows um, and in the consumer world, maybe the most relevant um, question in the long run is like, what's the long-term defensibility of this product? And so do you believe that at some scale, this product will be even better? So there's like a natural scale advantage or is there a network effect or is there, you know, a real brand that can be built here that could be iconic? Um, uh, so that's kind of put that all in the blender and, um, and, uh, and then, you know, I think looking at the team, and that's a, a big part of the equation, maybe the only part that actually matters is if this is the team that gave birth to this product concept, they're already special. Like if you've fallen in love with a product and you think it could be sort of a world changing thing, like that's so unbelievably rare in the consumer world that, um, you know, all credit goes to any team that can, that can bring that to life. And then do you believe that that's the team that can build not only sort of prove that this is a great product, but actually be the ones to win the market. So especially in the consumer world, these products don't say, stay secret all that long. And so um, will this team be able to execute? Will the founders be able to recruit incredible people? Nobody can do this by themselves. And so um, it's, not, it's not enough to have a, a super talented founder, but they have to be um, great attractors of other people um, to build a great team that can sort of build that long-term defensibility. Now, what's the best way to get on your radar? You know, if you're a founder looking to uh, raise venture capital. Yeah, it's um, somebody when I went to Hollywood told me, I was like, okay, how do I sell a script? They were like, okay, write a really good script and lock it in your basement. And, you know, the next day somebody's going to ring your doorbell and try to buy it. And that didn't exactly happen, but it kind of happened. Like when we wrote good scripts with good ideas, um, it was tough to stay secret for long. And so, you know, I think the best way, a is who you know the last thing you should be thinking about when you're founding a business is who how to find a venture capitalist you should just be thinking about can i found an awesome business can i build an awesome product mm -hmm. if you do that um and you launch it i'm probably going to find you pretty soon um it's again in the consumer world these things don't say secret now if if anyone wants to talk to me before they launch something i would say you know huge caveat i'm I'm more likely to, um, you know, screw them up than not if they listen to too much of my advice. So again, the the sort of core magic of building an incredible product is something I think um, only like great entrepreneurs can truly do. But um, just email me. I respond to all of my emails. Message me on LinkedIn. I try to, you know, be very um, accessible. Um, maybe a little less so now that I have two small children um, than I was uh, ten years ago when I started. But um, you know, I'm certainly open to the next great founders or people who um, could come from anywhere. And so I pay a lot of attention to my inbox. Well, wow. so, you know, so when I talk to a lot of other investors, it's like, well, the warm intro is obviously the the best way to get. But so it sounds like you're seriously looking at all channels. It's not just the warm intros. Yeah, look, I think um, probably when you're dealing with great founders, they are. Um, going to you know be um pretty effective at closing sales and so they'll know to approach people through you know connections but um i also again i'm obsessively focused on what is the next great product idea mm -hmm. and so if somebody sends me an email and describes a product that um 
sounds different and new to me. Um, I don't care, you know, where they came from, where they went to school. It just doesn't matter to me if I think that they could be building something that's differentiated. And I try to, you know, I think any time that people get those blinders on and say, well, like only if somebody gets introduced to me by somebody I knew, you know, from this place, am I going to take it seriously? I think that's when you miss Twitter. Um, and that's when you miss, you know, Twitter in the heart of Silicon Valley. But that's when you miss like the next great business that's going to be founded in Cleveland is you say, well, somebody ran randomly emailed me from Cleveland. Like, well, what's that about? Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, I try to be open to any um, inbound contact. And th the truth is most everything, you know, a lot of the things that are going to come inbound, I'm going to have, um, you know, it, we have an incredibly high bar. Like if you look in the last... Um, decade um, in the consumer sector, there have only been sort of three or four businesses a year that have exited for um, this sort of magical billion dollar number. And so, you know, we're, we're certainly um, cautious on, you know, trying to remind ourselves that um, incredible consumer companies are incredibly rare. So I'm not going to waste a lot of an entrepreneur's time or, or my time. Um, uh, if I feel like they, they don't have an idea that's, you know, truly differentiated, but if they do, um, I don't really care, you know, who they know. And are there mistakes that you see that are, I don't know if common's the right word, but what mistakes do you see founders make when they are pitching you their idea or, you know, finally get the coffee meeting or come in with their pitch deck? Um, I would say, you know, um, this is personal. I, I think, the, you know, different investors are going to have a different style. For me, I just want to have a real conversation with somebody. And so the more that it, feels like it's a pitch deck, um, the more that we're probably not connecting. And especially for an early stage company, um, at the heart of it, it's a very simple idea. And again, I, I come back to my days in Hollywood, like this, the script ideas that we could sell were the ones we could describe in one sentence. And so, especially with the consumer landscape, that's true too. Like it's very hard to sell a consumer a product that you can't describe to them in a very succinct way. And so, you know, the best conversations I have are just conversations about an awesome thing that needs to be brought to life um, for consumers. And so it's not about the quality of your PowerPoint slides and all that. Now that will come. I think if, if we get interested, um, you know, I think we, um, you know, it would, it's, you know, pretty common next step would be great. Like, what's the plan? Or like, what do you think next year will look like? Um, so I think entrepreneurs are probably smart to have materials, you know, ready to go. But I think for me, the best first conversation is just let's grab some coffee and um, talk about like, you know, your vision for the future of changing the consumer world. And we talked about the industry categories that you focus on, but the stage of investments you make. So it's, it, it's, is it seed series A? Is that the we're, we're, so the benefit of us being sort of roadmap thematic driven investors is that we are totally agnostic as to the stage of the company. And so, you know, if we have, a, if we come to a strong opinion on, um, you know, the meal kit market, um, we might make a seed stage investment, but if, if it's too late, we'll, and we think the best company in the world is a later stage company, we'll invest in that company instead, if we can, um, I would say sort of the bread and butter, um, it's a little bit bimodal where we might have, you know, a, a big share of our investments would be seed and A, um, and another, you know, decent share of our investments would be sort of series C and beyond. Um, so, uh, we've got, uh, we've got the range there, which is nice. 
So when you go to the Bessemer website, I love the anti-portfolio. I find that just, mm-hmm. you know, it's great that you throw it out there that, yep, we missed two. Uh, so, you know, you, you look at it, it's like Airbnb, Apple, eBay, Facebook, it's all these Titans. It's like, oh, we missed. And there's little bylines of what actually happened and how right. it occurred. So it's not like, yeah, we missed that. We passed on that. There's actually data there or a story behind it. Do you have any anti-portfolio companies? Um, oh, painfully, I do. I mean, it's fun. That is, that's sort of the best uh, marketing thing that ever happened to us. Uh, one of my partners wrote the anti-portfolio years ago and people love that. Um, it's, um, you know, internally, you, you know, we, we feel the pain of those and we try to remind ourselves that, uh, of just uh, how stupid we can be on any given day. Um, Cause again, I think that's pretty key um, when you're in a meeting to, to, you know, remind yourself that like you and your partners have missed like lots of incredible companies over the years. Um, I, uh, um, I mean, I met um, the Stitch Fix founder when she was at Harvard and thought she was really talented. Um, but at the time, I was a big data investor and, and I mean, just, just clueless. Um, <laughs> and uh, so that was painful. The fun pain of that was one night in the middle of the night, the, her business had been called Rack Habit at the time. And I um, was in such a fog that I'd failed to connect the dots. I'd watched this incredible business stitch fix emerge and, um, look, you know, just amazing. Um, and, uh, but by that point it was way too late. And, uh, and then one night in the middle of the night, I literally woke up and like yelled at my wife, like stitch fixes rack habit. And he was like, <laughs> oh, I don't know what you're talking about at all. Um, and, and I pulled up Go back to the chain and realized like I'd missed that. So that one, was kind of um, a delayed reaction um, stupidity, which was fun. Um, there's a business in uh, New York, an enterprise business called Datadog, which is uh, has one of the most talented founding teams I've ever met. Um, incredible product, and um, and uh, you know tried to invest, but just didn't did, didn't quite get there. And uh, every day I just kick myself because it's just. Um, such a powerful vision. It's going to be a massive company one day, in my opinion. Absolutely. Well, Kent, thanks so much for taking the time and for sharing all your words of wisdom, you know, across your history of being a screenwriter to your uh, experiences of venture capitalists. So appreciate the, uh, the advice for the entrepreneurs. It's a pleasure. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.